Now, this Bible reading, as you know, the, as you know, the, the, it's the basics of assembly testimony we are taking up. And this Bible reading is taken by our, David, our brother David Gilliland. We are very thankful for brother David. And uh, he will be speaking. What covers his is the serving with the right methods. Sorry, coming with the right message. Sorry, there's one too far, too far down. Coming with the right message. That's 1 Corinthians verse 1 to 25. And that's what we are going to discuss now. I should have said too that we are glad to see all who have come today. We welcome you all in the Lord's name. And we trust that all will be blessed, that none will go unblessed away. So we leave the babbling the, the over to our brother David. Now shall we read the passage appointed 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. And while we're finding the place you can, if necessary, switch your mobile phone to silent. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish 
the wisdom of this world. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. <coughs> and we trust the Lord's blessing upon the reading of his word and our consideration of it together. <coughs> now I think there's a sense in which we can say that this particular year, as it turns out, we have arrived back at home. I say that referring to the fact that for a few years we have been in other parts of Scripture, profitable parts, interesting, equally inspired. But we've been in the book of Genesis for a year or two, and also in prophetic portions, the end of the book of Revelation. But here we are back now to a church epistle. And it speaks directly to us. And we are in a portion of the New Testament that very much belongs to us. It is about us. And it is to us this first epistle to the Corinthians. It's a letter, as you know, in our English translation, it's the longest letter of the Apostle Paul, slightly longer than Romans. In the original, Romans is the longer of the two. But these two great substantial letters stand at the very head of the collection of the epistles of the Apostle Paul. And here we are to consider the first quarter or so of this great first letter to the Corinthians. A letter is an interesting document. All different kinds of letters. You can get a business letter, and that will have a particular format. You can get a friendship letter, get a letter of invitation, get a solicitor's letter, a legal letter, get a commercial letter. Letters come in different shapes and sizes. And it's important that we appreciate the kind of letter that we have here and all that is associated with it. The brethren have mentioned that I would take some minutes and make general comments and then come to the immediate passage before us. I was in a home not so very long ago and a brother handed me a sheet. He said, David, look at that. It was a letter. Two-thirds of the page, I glanced at the date, I glanced down to see who the writer was, and I read the lines in between. I could see, get the bones of a story, and uh, some kind of a problem, little bit of a dispute. And uh, I said to the brother, what's all that about? And he said, well, he said, that letter that you're reading, David, is actually a response to a letter that I sent. And uh, he said there were one or two phone calls as well, and then he told me uh, some of the pieces of the story. And it all came together. The letter that I held in my hand, it meant far more when I heard the story behind the letter. And when I heard about one or two of the contacts that had been made both verbally and in written form between the parties. Now, First Corinthians is a little bit like that. It's a very significant letter, but it will mean more to us if you give me a few minutes to say something about the story behind it 
And then we'll come to examine some of the, the substance. Now just to underline what I've already hinted at, the first matter that I do really want to mention is the significance, the great significance of First Corinthians. The previous letter is giving to us the great truths of the gospel. We wouldn't be without Romans. This letter is giving to us the truths of, of gathering. Gathering an assembly testimony to the name of the Lord Jesus. The purpose of the preaching of the gospel is that souls would be saved, baptized, and come together as congregations of Christ, bearing testimony to a Lord that has been rejected. That's why it's very fitting that the great epistle of gathering follows hard on the heels of the great epistle of the gospel. If it weren't for this epistle, there are matters to do with assembly discipline we would know nothing about. We could get hints in other passages, but 1 Corinthians 5 teaches us some of the principles of assembly discipline and excommunication. Details about the Lord's Supper we would never know were it not for this letter. The control of an assembly meeting and how to take part and when to take part. We are given the details of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The great properties of the resurrection body they are not spelt out in such detail in any other part of the Bible except in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that on a number of important topics, the epistle before us is exceedingly significant. The significance of the letter. Then, just to go back a little bit, I want to say a word or two about the story behind the letter. Well, we know, obviously, it's right here at the front, the frontispiece of it, that this letter is written to Christians who lived in a place called Corinth. An interesting place it was. It was a city with a very, a very ancient history, but this was not ancient Corinth. Uh, the period that we are talking about is the middle of the first century A.D. That's a period that, as far as Corinth, Corinth is concerned, from secular history, is very well documented. And there are many things that I won't be mentioning in a meeting like this. But there are a number of things that I want to mention because they have a bearing upon some of the subjects that we will be considering. Ancient Corinth, and indeed much that I read in here, is about ancient Corinth, not new Corinth. Ancient Corinth was destroyed by the Romans. In 146 BC, just as part of their punitive expedition, at the end of the Third Punic War, ancient Corinth, that had a great history, it was wiped out completely. It lay desolate for a hundred years. Just about 50 years before Christ, Julius Caesar refounded the city of Corinth as a Roman colony. So it was a fresh, brand, spanking brand new city. And when the Apostle Paul arrived, it was just about 100 years old. People were making space for themselves. New organizations were being formed. A lot of things were fresh. One or two relics from the old society. But more or less, Corinth, as we are talking about it here, it was a comparatively recent 
city. That will be important just for what I will mention in a minute or two. Secondly, it was a commercial city. It was at a great commercial hub at the very centre of the land of Greece. You know from your, uh, the map in your imagination that Greece has two large chunks of land joined by another, a narrow isthmus. And Corinth was just right there on that isthmus. The trade came from the west and trade came from the east. It had two harbours. It was a great emporium of business. There were traders and travellers and tourists that were constantly passing through the streets. This was a comparatively new city. This was a commercial hub. It was a cosmopolitan city. You see, ancient Greeks, ancient Corinth had been a Greek city. This is a Roman city. Founded by Julius Caesar. The new citizens, the core of the new citizens were Romans. Some of the old Greeks came back when their great city had been refounded. But at its base, it's a Roman city with Greek influence. And of course, it also has a Jewish synagogue. We read about that in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 18. Quite a cosmopolitan, quite a mix, a melting pot of different cultures I suppose we would say a recipe for some friction so that that might have a bearing even upon some of our studies. It was also a corrupt city. The two harbours that I've alluded to, they let in more than trade. Flooding into this city were all kinds of ideas and all kinds of immorality. In Paul's time there, you could have maybe found up to 26 different idolatrous shrines lining the streets of this new city. It was a place that was throbbing with heathenism and you could find paganism at every corner. And the immorality that went with the idolatry, it certainly was just quite a place to be. But it was on the cutting edge of modernity. If you wanted to be in a place that was right up there in the first century... Corinth was the place to go. People that were entrepreneurs and people that were making a name. In fact, that will bring me to the fifth thing that I'll say about it. As well as being a comparatively new city, a cosmopolitan city, a commercial city, a corrupt city, it was a competitive city. Everybody was wanting to make a name. Because it was new, you had a chance to get a little bit of space for yourself. If you had something to say, and you could say it well, if you could go to Corinth and stand upon a platform and say your piece with exuberance, with eloquence, with oratorical skill, and with rhetorical prowess, you could command an audience. You could sway, support. You could manipulate the crowd. You could collect for yourself as many votes as would put you in. You could easily gather with the swagger of your personality and the commanding eloquence of your tongue. You could easily gather quite a few patrons that would really give you all the admiration and the adulation that you would ever wish. A competitive place where everybody was climbing on one ladder or another. Business ladders, political ladders. And one of the best ladders to climb was the ladder of oratory. 
or rhetoric or wisdom. You could, it had a number of rungs that you could get up very, very quickly. That was it. In AD 50, there was a man landed into that city. He wasn't interested in any of the things that I have mentioned. He was a lonely man, a tent maker. He was more than a tent maker. He was a preacher of the gospel. He brought into that city so corrupt, cosmopolitan, so competitive, so comparatively new, he brought a message they never had heard before. It was a message that didn't cater to their sense of Corinthian pride. It was a message that met their deepest need as guilty sinners. The message of the cross and the atoning death of the Lord Jesus. As he preached that message, souls were saved. They were baptized. An assembly was planted. And after 18 months, he went on his way. And he left something in this new city of Corinth that was altogether distinct from anything that had previously been there. The Romans had nothing like it. And the Greeks had nothing like it. And the Jews had nothing like it. It's a church of God. A masterpiece of divine grace. And many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, were baptized, and an assembly was planted to the honor of the Lord Jesus. So, we have now come to A.D. 51, and the Apostle Paul has gone his way. And when he writes this letter, we're just about three years later, four at the most, Serious problems have bubbled up. Serious problems. In fact, in fact, he has received some reports that lie behind the letter. And they have also sent him a letter that has re- requested help on certain issues. That's why we have 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was the Apostle Paul's answer to reports that he had received orally. And his answer to requests that had been put down in a letter which the Corinthians had sent to him. That's why I told you about that letter I read from my brother. I just couldn't put it all together. But when he told me that it was an answer to a letter he sent, I could see how it stitched together. Also a phone call or two between Paul and the Corinthians. During that three-year period, reports had filtered and a letter had been sent. And serious difficulties, I say, You see, I don't want to be too hard on them. They're just four years saved. Nobody had ever done this in Corinth before. You say, but what about the old men that served the Lord in the previous... There were no old men that served the Lord in the previous generation in Corinth. First generation Christians for the greater part, saved out of the rawness of their paganism. They didn't even have a complete Bible. They were gifted. They had the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul wasn't with them. You see, that competitive spirit that was out in the town, where the best talker got to the top, a wee bit of that got into the assembly. You see that immorality that was out in the town? Some of that got into the assembly. 
You see that love of show and that love of noise and the love of sensationalism that was out in the town. A little bit of that got into the assembly and if you had gone to a meeting in Corinth you had two or three people speaking at once. They all wanted to be up doing their little piece. You see some of that old Greek rationalism that was out in the town where everything was sorted out and it was all logic. Some of that got into the assembly and the Apostle Paul said directed in the assembly some who deny the resurrection of the body. So here's a young assembly in a very, very difficult city. It's a city with a very litigious outlook. Everybody wants a claim. If you had a fall on the footpath in Corinth, you ended up in court and you got a claim from the civic council. A little bit of that got into the assembly. Some of the Christians were taking each other to court. So what was out there was seeping in. We always have to watch that, you know. The seepage of the spirit of the age into the assembly. It was not the, only, the only difference is, you say, but I'm ashamed. I feel it's very bad that they had drifted so badly. Well, as I say, they didn't have the letter. I have a bigger worry. There are places that do have it. They do have it. And it's just as if they never saw its page. So much liberalism. So much accommodation. So much compromise with their surroundings. And many that are professedly assemblies. Oh, but you say, we're just as bad as Corinth. Just, just hold a little second. We're not as bad as Corinth. They didn't have the letter. We have. We have no excuse for our liberalism and for our church. We have generations of the heritage of testimony. They're first generation Christians. So, so much for the story behind the letter. The place, the preacher, the problems. Now, in this letter, I want to mention very, very quickly, and uh, because it's going right through the letter, away beyond the remit of our responsibility for this Bible reading. In the letter, he raises quite a number of subjects. You see, in these first four chapters, a major subject that we will be considering will be the factions, the party spirit, the divisions that were incipient in, in the assembly, following preachers and all that kind of thing, the factions. When you get to chapter 5 and chapter 6, he'll deal with the fornication. And in the middle of that, he'll deal with those faults that were taking them to court. When you get to chapter 7, he'll deal with family matters, marriage, and family. And quite enough. When you get to chapter 8 and chapter 10, he'll deal with food offered to idols and idolatrous festivals. In between in chapter 9, he'll deal with finance for gospel preachers. When you get to chapter 11, he'll deal with the fundamental symbols of testimony. Every assembly has four symbols. At the beginning of that chapter, we have two symbols. The short hair and the uncovered head of the man. Then we have the long hair and the covered head of the woman. Two important symbols of headship 
Later in the chapter, we will have the symbol of the bread and the symbol of the cup. The fundamental symbols of assembly testimony. When you get to 12 to 14, he will be dealing with the function of gift. Who takes part, when they take part, how long to take part. The order, the decently and an order. When you get to chapter 15, he'll be speaking about the future resurrection of the body. When you get to chapter 16, he'll talk about the fun. Or the fellowship for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Every one of those topics will be covered by the Apostle Paul. Not giving his advice, merely. Giving an authoritative message from heaven for these Christians and for all others who would read this wonderful letter. So the subjects are broad and wide, and we'll not be covering them as I say. Our particular examination will be these chapters considering the factions. Consider it first, because if you have a divided company, you'll never get the other things sorted out. You must sort out division first and have the company united. And then other things can be dealt with uh, as a unanimous body. Now just before I come to the passage that I want to say very, very brief remarks upon. What about the solutions in this letter? You say, well, all those problems and areas that you've talked about, you would hardly know where to start. You see, the Apostle Paul is not only in this epistle an expert diagnostician. He can diagnose the problem He's an equally expert physician. He can prescribe the remedy. Very many people can see what's wrong and say, huh, you hear about them? Well, it doesn't take a great person to know something's wrong. Can you prescribe a remedy? In the remedy that the Apostle prescribes to solve these many problems, there are three ingredients. First of all, he constantly takes them back to the cross of Christ. He said, get back to the cross. Get back to the gospel. The blood of Christ. The body of Christ. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Christ died for our sins. He said, the answer to your problem is a fresh appreciation of all that took place at Calvary. We were singing there, beneath the cross of Jesus I take my stand. Many a time we sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. You know, we don't have a crucifix on our building. But you know what I mean when I say, all assembly testimony should be conducted beneath the shadow of the cross. Then he tricks the other direction, and he looks forward to the Lord's coming. We'll do that before we finish the Bible readings, even in this Bible reading, to the great day when the Lord will come. And he'll close the letter with that great note of Maranatha. The cross of Christ in the past. The coming of Christ in the future. What about in between? Well, he said, don't forget that Christ is Lord. He said, he who suffered on the cross and he who soon is coming again is Lord. And he said, as you remember his cross and anticipate his coming, he said, in all your meetings recognize his control. Let him be Lord. He said, don't be promoting men. And don't be promoting individuals and ideologies. He said, let it be Lord. And I think, dear Christians, if we could bring those three things into assembly life, 
all our squabbles and our carnality, if we could bring them to the cross and examine them in light of the Bema and set them down before a Savior whom we acknowledge as Lord, it would bring most of our problems to a spiritual and a scriptural resolution. The significance of the letter, the story behind the letter, the subjects within the letter, the solutions presented in these pages, and just in a word, I have to say a little bit to ease us in the start of the letter in these 25 verses that we have read together. Now, in the verses, there are four little sections, quite obvious, and uh, We'll try and follow them if we can as we make our way through. In the first three verses, the Apostle Paul gives us his audience. He said, what I want to say in this letter, there's a number of people I would like to hear it. And he first of all says, a local, he points out a local audience. He says, the church of God which is at Corinth. He says, you Christians at Corinth, I would like you to hear this particular letter. Well, you say, well, that's a long bit from us. You told us it was A.D. 55. Yes, that that is correct. You say that's many centuries ago and it's away many miles from here. But then he is not only a local audience, he is a larger audience. He said the material of this letter is for all in every place. He says if you get an assembly in Mexico, but you wouldn't expect 1 Corinthians to work in Mexico, would you? Something that's linked to the culture of first century Greece. It would never work in 21st century Mexico. Is it not stretching it? Yes, it will work in Mexico. What about Canada? Dear brethren, I want to say, and I know this will command complete assent, the teaching of 1 Corinthians is both universal and dispensational. The Lord intends that the teaching of this letter is followed in every assembly and intends that it's followed until the trumpet sounds and the Lord comes again. The audience. Then from verse 4 to 9, we have the appreciation. The Apostle Paul gives thanks. You say, I don't think there's much to give thanks for. He thanks God for the favors that they have received. Grace and gift and plenty. And he thanks God for the great future that is coming. He said, you'll be confirmed until the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he thanks God for the great fellowship. God has called us into the fellowship of his Son. And he thanks God for his faithfulness. He said, God is faithful. I think it's, we look at that appreciation. Then we have his appeal. He said, you know, there's something that gives me concern. He said, I have heard that there are, there are contentions. And he said... There are different names. Some are saying, I have this, I have that, I have the other. And he said, I, he said, I, I would love to see, instead of those different contentions that I, he said, I would love to see harmony. He says, don't be, don't be tossing around. He said, this name and that name. He said, there's only one name. There's just one name that has any currency in the assembly. He said, it's the name of our Lord. Jesus Christ. He said, I appeal to you by that name that you be joined together in one mind. Then we have his argument. When we get from verse 18 to the end of our reading, 
He said, this appeal that I'm making, it's based upon an argument. He said, you're promoting men. He said, when I came, I preached a message that didn't promote men. He said, the message of the cross doesn't cater to human pride. He said, the message of the cross doesn't boost the human ego. He said, the message of the cross, it strips man of all his imagined glory. It leaves him standing guilty before God. And it tells him that nothing less than the shed blood of the Savior would ever meet his need as a sinner. And he said, we preach Christ crucified. He said, this message contravenes. It contravenes all the conventions of human wisdom. It turns them upside down. And I hope that God will help us to understand some of the teaching. I might just say this as I sit down. We've been making our way toward the closing part of the section where the Apostle speaks about his gospel. And I would like to emphasize, dear brethren, because others will be emphasizing it, I'll just highlight it now with other things. The gospel testimony of an assembly is absolutely vital. Assembly testimony will never be any stronger than the gospel that is preached. Many of our problems commence with the platform on Sunday evening. And a defective gospel and a diluted gospel and a distorted gospel and a gospel of easy believism It will fill the assembly with profession. It will lower the standards of testimony. And it will cripple any possible advancement for the glory of God. That's why many of these epistles start with the gospel. And I hope that the Lord will help us to feel the importance, dear brethren, feel the importance of the gospel and the preaching of Christ crucified so that testimony might be established. Now I've taken longer because these other dear brethren they told me weren't allowed as long because I had to do the extra little bit of giving a general outline but that will bring us immediately into this opening section. I'm sure we'll, we'll come. Sorry, I'll just give it right in a minute. We'll come immediately into this first section, and I want to say one or two quick, brief things about it. But do any of our dear brethren have a general comment to make about the epistle at large? Or there are many things could be added to what I said. But feel free to do that now, and then we'll come to verses 1 to 3. Brother Gilliland, this may sound simplistic to many in the audience. Is everything in this epistle 
addressed to a church of God. The church of God at Corinth. Mm-hmm. And no difficulty with that whatsoever. And right. Yeah. Does he digress anywhere between 1 verse 1 and the last chapter and the last verse to deal with any kind of meeting when a particular sex is gathered together only? Absolutely not. Thank God for that answer. And the reason I ask that question may not be clear to many in the audience. There are some who, when they arrive at chapter 11, treat part of that chapter as dealing with sisters gathered, independent of brethren. Personally, I believe the whole epistle is applicable to assembly gatherings, including male and female. Am I correct in that? Exactly. That very chapter, the passage that Mr. Nez would refer to, no such custom, neither the churches of God. Yes, now, I'll say this and then leave it to others. When we think of the church of God and read of the churches of God, we're thinking of origin. The churches of Christ We're thinking of possession purchased by his own blood. The churches of the saints were thinking of composition. And the churches of Judea, of Galatia, location. These are simple things, but they're really profound. And young believers particularly, I believe, should get a firm grasp of these facts. Thank you. That's very helpful. That will bring us right now to this first section, Paul's greeting. Now, in this section, there are four areas to be touched. First of all, we have the Apostle. He says, I'm an Apostle of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus through the will of God. Then we have his associate. Associated with him, there's our brother, Sosthenes, our brother. Then we have his address. Unto the church of God which is at Corinth. And then we have his assurance. Verse number 3. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've already mentioned about the Apostle. Does any brother want to say anything about the Apostle's authority? He's not writing this giving private opinions. We'll never. We'll never even in our wildest dreams I hope. Be caught saying. But that's just what Paul said. This is written with the authority of an apostle with the affection of a brother. Apostle and our brother, Sosthenes. And that's how ministry is still given. With the authority of apostolic revelation, with the affection of, of brotherhood. And then, to the, get to the main address, which is, or Mr. Nesbitt has gone to that, and I'm very happy. Unto the church of God. This is the first part of the address. The church of God, then he'll broaden it in a moment or two with every one that in our in every place. The church of God. Now, help us in that expression. I take it, I take it, dear believers, that wherever the expression church of God appears in the New Testament, it always refers to a local assembly. Mm-hmm. It's not the church which is his body. Now, furthermore, the Apostle didn't write this epistle to the Christians who were an expression of the church. 
Hmm. I'm really aghast. And uh, blame me for taking over ministry meetings. But uh, our brethren, the conveners, I'll tell you a little bit behind the scenes, they have expressed a wish to all the brethren that, that simple assembly principles should be rehearsed. There will be other little difficulties and maybe technical points here, there and yonder, but they'll be kept to the, to the ages. The church of God. I hear that a local assembly is the expression of the church universal. There's no such thing. And the local assembly is a miniature of something bigger than a... The, listen, brethren. The local assembly is not a reflection of anything bigger than itself. Except the Lord. It's a complete entity. It's not a part of some larger groupage. So that someday from a larger groupage some information may come to the local assembly. The local assembly is distinct with its boundaries. The church of God and responsible to the Lord guided by the word of God. A complete entity. The same, but the local assembly is a microcosm of the universal. It's not in the Bible. It's a microcosm of nothing. It's a full expression of. But you say, but a, a brother's in the local testimony whether he gathers or not. That's not true. Those that are in the church of God are people who are gathered. The apostle later on speaks about the whole church. The whole church gathered in one place. Always gasp that dear, that the assembly is a unique, a distinct, clearly defined entity in itself. With an inside and an outside. Not with blurred boundary. We do not gather in assembly testimony on the ground of the one body. Amen. We gather in testimony to the name of the Lord Jesus. That's something that needs to be grasped. And I know Mr. McBride one of the brethren that has taught me those things when I was much younger. Go ahead, Brother McBride. Glad to hear you again bring before us the distinction between the church which is his body and a church of God or churches of God. Thinking of the church of God, Acts chapter 20, very precious, purchased with his own blood infinite as to his cost, saints gathered unto the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, there am I, present continuous tense in the midst of them. I would like you to say something more of the distinction between a church of God and the churches that are around us. The church of God is divinely planted, but that which is around us is other names and they're all man-made and man's ideas. Yeah, uh, and we, we'll come to what our brother Mr. McBride is asking about later in the chapter where we have a groupage under the names of men. Now, I know there's a broad audience here and I'm not speaking about any individual at all. But listen, brethren. Denominationalism is a sin against the New Testament teaching. Denominationalism is a sin directly against the teaching of the New Testament. You say, that's fierce, that's fierce. And I should be exercised that in my activities, in my associations, I don't contribute in any way to the upbuilding 
of what is totally opposed to the New Testament. Now, I know many genuine believers associated with denominations that bear tags of doctrines and men. A church of God was a unique grouping. What are you going to call them? We've never had the likes of this in Corinth before. And everybody gets a name. There are so many guilds and groups and clubs, and they all are classified. What are you going to call these people? Will you have a name for them? Oh, the Apostle says, we have a name for them, surely. We just have the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There'll never be a greater name than that. Let us dispense with all other ancillary tags and promote his name. Alone. Now, just for our brother, sorry, Mr. Nesbitt, go ahead, please. Just one thing that I would want to say concerning the distinction of the Church of God. It's not a miniature, it's not an expression, it's not a facsimile, and it's not a microcosm. It is an entity. Now, let me ask a question. Does everyone here know what an entity is? An entity is that which has its own peculiar, distinctive element, distinct from everything else. It's the church of just our brother is going to take part. It's the church of God which is. Those two little words sometimes in Greek they're in italics and they're just supply. But in this particular case they're not in italics. Nor in Acts 13, the church which is. At Antioch, which is, it had a distinct present existence. Uh, sorry, brother, go ahead. We're not giving these brethren a chance to get in. Just a quick comment, and I don't want to push you ahead to verse 12, but will we keep in mind that of all the problems that will be addressed in the Corinthian letter, the first and foremost, the one that will run through the first four chapters, is the division of verse 12. As soon as we use the word denomination, denamo will be the Latin of the name of. And that is the very first problem and difficulty dealing with, isn't it? Yeah. So we need to be careful that we understand what the local assembly is, that it's identified with Christ, that is unique, as these brethren are saying. We're identified to Him, we're gathered to Him, and no other name suffices in the, in the sight of God. Right. And, and just in connection with that, there's another, uh, we have spoken about denominationalism as systems. There's another thing that I see great, we hear about parachurch fellowships. Hmm. Oh, but it's not an assembly. It's not an assembly, but it's a, a lovely Christian fellowship. Some lovely people there. What kind of people do you have? Oh, well, we, have, we, go, to the, we go to the Christian teachers, school teachers fellowship. Hmm. They're all... Or we go to the Christian Businessman's Fellowship. And oh, I, go on, I go on Wednesday night to the Christian Policeman's Fellowship. Well, it's great to have Christian Businessmen, Christian Policemen, Christian School Teacher, Christian Nurses Fellowship. But you say, but how does that relate to Assembly Testimony? Well, let me say this. Those fellowships are a direct contradiction of New Testament teaching. Why? Now, come on. Because. I find many of our people, because they have lost the dignity and the distinctiveness and the definitude of church of God which is gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus we have a hemorrhaging to these other fellowships they're more cosy and they're more cuddly well don't, they, don't, they don't talk about head covering and they don't get into nitty gritties and things like that, they're not assemblies they're just fellowships, if it's not an assembly you should have nothing to do with it and what's more 
assembly testimony in the New Testament was to eliminate social distinctions. There's no bond, there's no free, there's no rich, there's no poor, there's no educated. All come together in testimony and social distinctions are eliminated by a New Testament assembly. Now, dear brethren, these fellowships that I'm talking about, they are socially grounded. If you're a school teacher, you go. If you're a policeman, you go. If you're a Christian doctor, you go to the Christian Doctor Association. I'm not an assembly fellowship because the other fellows work at the same job. Assembly fellowship should never be predicated on the job you work on or your education. Something was instituted by the Lord Jesus through the apostles that eliminated those social distinctions. So be careful, dear Christians, about parachurch fellowship as well. Sorry, Mr. McGrath. Mention has been made of denominationalism. That goes back quite a time as to its commencement and, of course, is a drifting from what we have in this portion of the Word and others as well. More recently, we have now interdenominationalism. And so we can see there's that move to unite all of those denominations into one, and that is travelling very, very fast, and is a real threat to many of the saints of God and the assemblies, as I see it. Well, that will bring us to another. These in assembly fellowship are sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart for God, a positional statement, and they're saints by calling, just as the apostle is an apostle by calling. You notice all this play on calling. He's an apostle by calling, they are saints by calling. The assembly, the ecclesia, anglicised pronunciation, the ecclesia is a called out company. And at the end of verse number 2, this is broadened out with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So that gives the epistle an international, not an interdenominational but an international significance. And maybe I should say, just before these other brethren decide me to take part, things that I have said about other fellowships and singer brethren, we're not saying that there aren't good people as far as personal godliness. We're not casting aspersions on individuals. We're not saying it in a proud way. Dear brethren, listen. I say this for younger believers. In assembly fellowship, we have nothing to be, a, to be proud of. Nothing that smacks of a spiritual superiority as if we are the people. May God deliver us from the stench of such pride. But at the same time, as far as assembly testimony is concerned, and the position, I'm not talking about the condition, as far as the assembly position is concerned, we may have nothing to be proud of, but thank God we have nothing to be ashamed of. You young believers, don't be sort of afraid, oh, I, just, I, don't, I don't belong to a big organization. I just belong to don't be ashamed. The one thing, your assembly made of ten behind it. No big ark, but I tell you what it has. It has got the Bible beneath it. And what has a scriptural foundation, you don't need to apologize for it. You don't need to be ashamed for it. Just cry to God that souls will be saved and spiritual additions will be made. Now, brother, help us, dear brother. What? Brother John. John Slack. John Slack. Yes, John. Yes, David. The Church of God at Corinth is only Corinth is addressed as the church to the Church of God. Church of Yeah. Out of all the it's a thirteen references to the Church of God. Yeah. yeah. Well but that's only a little issue, but 
Why is it we seldom use the term <coughs> in our normal parlance and a Lord's servant writing to an assembly? We, we, we very seldom would say to the Church of God at Lurgan or to the Church of God at Portadown or what, what's your mind on that? <laughs> well, is there anything really wrong with using indeed, the term? Indeed, there's not. We've already heard that. I take it there are three things involved in that beautiful expression. Mr. Tyndale, he translated it congregation. I'm sorry that didn't stand. When the later translators come in and they did a masterly piece of work, there were some words that they had to keep just to justify old James as head of the church. And this was one of them. Instead of congregation, they changed Tyndale's congregation and they went back to church. It's a pity they hadn't kept it to the congregation of God. Or better still, the assembly. Now we have already heard that the church of God refers to origin. That's our brother John. We should think of... There never would have been such a group of people at Corinth had God not wrought mightily. Not only does it speak about origin, it speaks about ownership. It originated with him, he owns it. And it also speaks about objective. The purpose of that congregation of people is to bear testimony to God. In a town, in a city that was filled with idolatry. And we should keep that in mind, an assembly testimony as well. Was it not because of religious influence in the minds of the translators of our good 16 and 11 uh-huh. King James Version that caused them to use the word church? Why were they not consistent and used the word assembly as it is properly used in the Acts of the Apostles? Let it be declared in a lawful assembly. There would be no problem if we spoke of the assembly rather than the church. It distinguishes us quite definitely from the uh, Church of Ireland, the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, etc. I have no difficulty at all because I don't use the word church at all. I talk about the assembly Mm. properly, scripturally. Surely it's, it's like the word bishop. They had to cut the corners and make accommodation to the system that we're in the day. Now, sorry, go ahead for me. Help us on verse 2, brother, because them that in every place call upon the name of the Lord, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, them that in every place today is often used to refer to those very ones you're speaking against. Now, who is referred to them that in every place? Church of God, which is at Corinth. And then I think the Apostle thinks of other cities right across the world. He had left, he, Corinth was the fifth major call on a second missionary journey. Started off in Philippi. I can't take time to talk about the distinction of each, each city. Philippi, then across to Thessalonica, then down to Berea, then Athens, then 45 miles across to Corinth. And I think the Apostle said, wherever in those cities, there is a similar congregation calling upon the Lord, preaching the Lord's name, praying in the Lord's name, praising the Lord's name, calling upon the Lord. Wherever there's such a congregation, he said, what I'm writing will be relevant to them. So what our brother is saying is, then that in every place is not talking about different groups, 
in the same city of Corinth that meet differently because there was no such thing. It's referring to those who gather in like manner in other cities where the gospel had been preached. So let's not apply it to religious groups elsewhere in the same area. Just one, just brother Ken, just one second, please. I want to finish off. Just, just one second. The Church of God, which is at Corinth, you say different groups. I, I love books now. Oh, they say you know it must have been a big assembly, and they met in different houses. Well, they're all house groups. That's another craze, house groups. And there are certain situations in certain countries and things. But I'm not going into all the details. And. <laughs> I'll be right out in a limb here. Listen, this is, I didn't read Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends, and keep them before they came to this Bible reading. But I will say this, brother. House groups, where there's an assembly that gathers in one place, fragmented house groups, it's a recipe for trouble. And it'll be a catalyst of division. Now, now, would you say, but oh, but you read about all different places in Corinth. The biggest said, listen, the Bible's a great book, you know. Just turn back the page of Romans 16. Apostle Paul says, there's a man at Corinth called Gaius. He was my host, and he was the host of the church. The whole church. So the whole church at Corinth met in Gaius' house. And all these things that I read in books about little groups, ten here and ten there and ten there, the Bible gives the answer. It's the whole church in one place. And that's what God, that's what God still desires. All the Christians gathered in one place, bearing testimony congregationally to the Lord's name. Now help us dear brethren. Just over a little thing on the distinctiveness of the local assembly. Sorry. And when our brother John was asking about Church of God, I intended to say, just go down through the epistles, especially this chapter, and see the emphasis upon God. They were boasting in men. He says it's what God has done. Brother David, I interrupted you there. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to mention, uh, one time I had a committee of churches come to visit me. And they asked me, what is your name? What is the name of your church? So I said, we're simply Christians that gather to the name of the Lord Jesus. So one man almost blew his temper. He said, so you only use the name. You have no surname. No surname. <laughs> very good. For Christians gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus. Aye, there's one, yeah, very, there's one name, name and we don't need any addition or surname. And I may just say this, with all that in every place, the Apostle Paul believed, this is what our brethren are speaking about, he believed in the fellowship of assembly in different places. And this assembly wasn't the standard for that assembly. And that assembly wasn't the standard for the third assembly. Fellowship, the Lord was the standard for them all. He believed in the fellowship of assembly. But the New Testament nowhere teaches the federation of assembly. Assemblies grouped together. Say in one particular province or one particular country. Grouped together under some kind of a a man-made federation with some centralization of control. Again, that has caused great grief and has disrupted testimony. Now, that's the, the greeting. I think we'll have to leave that. We'll go into Paul's gratitude from verse 4. Our brother Cotton has brought us into this with 
He's grateful. He says, I thank my God always. Still for the grace. And he's grateful for the gifts. Verse number 5. He said, you have gifts and you come behind a new gift. And he's grateful for the glory. He says, you're heading for glory. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I also thank God for the guarantee. He said, it'll all happen. God is faithful. By whom you were called. Unto the fellowship of his son. Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's great to see the positive thanksgiving. Of the apostle here. Mm. Will you comment. Just a simple thought. I notice that the title Lord. Is mentioned at least five times. Mm. In the first nine verses. Does that have a significance? Oh sure. sure. Was there not an acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ. That there should have been. Mm-hmm. In Corinth. If they had. There wouldn't have been these failures. Exactly. You see what our brother, see verse number, our brother, Mr. Stubb, verse number three, Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm -hmm. Verse number seven, the coming of our Lord, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Verse number eight, the day of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse number nine, His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then into the next section, I beseech you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. You couldn't help but hear the, the rule of that great title right down the verses. Could we see a contrast between this when he writes to the church or the saints at Philippi, to all the saints that are at Philippi, and he gives thanks to God for every remembrance of them. And he thanks God for their fellowship expressed in the gospel. When he writes to the Thessalonians, in fact in the second epistle, I'm bound to give thanks to God because your charity abounded. But in this chapter, he's thanking God for what God has done at Corinth. He prefaces his remarks by thanksgivings, but it's all for what God has bestowed upon them and the riches that they now enjoy. They're indebted to God. See the emphasis of our brother. Sometimes the apostle gives thanks for their faithfulness and gives thanks for their love and gives thanks for their sacrifice and gives thanks for their service. He doesn't do that at Quran. Those things were very faulty. But you say, well now, with all those, what are you going to be able to give thanks for? He says, I'll give thanks for the grace of God. He says, the fact that, he says, I was there, you know. He says, and I know what the place is like. And he says, they have problems plenty. But he says, the very fact there's an assembly there at all. He says, it just makes my heart rise in gratitude to God. For his grace, that in such a place, there's such a thing. We can always appreciate grace. Sorry, Brother Brand. Brother Brand. Uh, verses 4 to 9 he seems to give tremendous levers you were mentioning about the, what we do it's easy getting the knowing there's a problem but what we do to, what we do about it the levers here it seemed to me he speaks about grace the favour of God mm-hmm. then in verse number 5 enriched there's a fullness in Christ mm-hmm. then in verse uh, number 7 there's the future with Christ waiting for the revelation and then in verse number 9 there are two there's the faithfulness of God and the fellowship of a son. And these would be tremendous things that would bring the division to be corrected and many more matters beside. 
That's very good what our brother has summarized that nicely. But there are one or two just... Our brother Stubbs wants to mention something. But there are one or two things just in there that I want to say. You'll say, well, no, I doubt, David... I doubt if they made so many mistakes and they got into so many problems. I doubt they mustn't have had much gift about the play. Mm-hmm. They couldn't have had all those problems and immorality and divisions and going to law and problems and head covering and all. He said, they couldn't have had all that if they had gifted me. He said, actually, he says, you were a very gifted assembly. And he says, it's not that God didn't give you the gift. And he says, God gave you all the gift in utterance and knowledge. Not only the communication of truth, but the comprehension of it. He said, as far as the theory was concerned, you could... You could get the technical grasp of it. And he said you could talk about it. Knowledge and utterance. And you came behind a new gift. Mm-hmm. Now that teaches us a very important lesson, dear brother. An assembly with plenty of gift doesn't necessarily mean it will be preserved. Mm-hmm. Gift in itself. Able men. Mm-hmm. Men that can take a Bible reading. Men that can preach. Remember... Able men gifted by God, I mean able in this, doesn't guarantee that the assembly will be preserved. Take, take something more. What is it? Help me on that. If gift in itself, skill in communication, knowledge of the Bible, able to put it out, if that doesn't, is not enough to keep an assembly, and those are great favors, as our brother has mentioned. What is the extra matter in addition to gift that's needed for the preservation? Of an assembly. Hmm. Yes, brother, if you go ahead. I would say the essential thing, apart from gift, is moral cleanness. We're living in days when standards are being lowered, even in assembly testimony. Now, I'm glad what I've heard this afternoon. And I agree, Brother David, with everything you've said. Even that statement, uh, fellowship of churches, that's something I've never heard before. You always hear about the autonomy of a local assembly. That's absolutely correct. But there is such a thing as a fellowship of assemblies. So I'm glad to hear old-fashioned truths stated today that we were brought up in. You know, when I come to Proverbs 23, verse 23, by the truth... And sell it not. The following chapter, verse 21, chapter 24, meddle not with them that are given to change. You have not to have any fellowship with them that are given to change. uh, Whether truth is old-fashioned or newfangled matters nothing. The question is, is it biblical? Can we find it in the Bible? And if we can get it in the Bible, it stands. Uh, Brother Brother Hull was going to say something there, maybe on that same subject. I was going to say, the the opening verses that you've referred to, 1 to 9, are very often said that Paul commends before he condemns. I wonder if that's right. I wonder if the opening verses are not a condemnation in themselves, because all that God has done for them, and God has so fitted them, that they could actually give the world a preview of the revelation. I thought a wee bit like Numbers, the the first ten chapters of Numbers, fitting the children of Israel for their journey in verse 10 of chapter 10, and in spite of that, 
we have their failures introduced. So in spite of what God has done for them, has done everything that they need, that they can give the world a preview, even like Titus, uh, giving a preview of what is yet to come. That's why possibly, I don't want to take it down too far, but Revelation is stressed in that verse. Uh, well, certainly, certainly, I think with what our brother has said, we can never, we can never excuse our failures by saying that God hasn't given us enough equipment. Mm. By the gifts, they were endowed, they were enriched, made wealthy, they were enabled. There wasn't a single gift lacking. And God said, he says, God gave you everything that should have sent you forward as a shining testimony unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of our Lord Jesus. He says, keep in mind the rapture and the review. The great day of revelation. Our brother's taking it beyond that even, what I'm saying now. But the day of revelation of Jesus Christ and the day, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ and the day of our Lord Jesus. Keep those things in mind. Brother David, in spite of all of their blessing, in spite of all of their gifts, they had their eyes off the Lordship of Christ, didn't they? That's, That's my point. Yeah. That's what I wanted to get there. What is it keeps beyond gift? If I, if I could have gift, but if I start to exercise my gift without subjection to the Lordship of Christ, mm-hmm. my gift could be very, very... We need to keep in fellowship with God. Dear Christians, it's not gift in itself. It's fellowship with God and humility of mind before the Lord that will preserve the proper atmosphere. Brother Wesley, I didn't see you there. Sorry. I was just going to, going to suggest that the problem was not lack of gift, but when we come to chapter 2 and 3, lack of spirituality. They were carnal. And if a carnal man has gift, it leads to disaster. Is that not uh, part of what the problem was? That's it. That's it. We sometimes mix in our mind, we say, oh, you know that, I'm speaking about gift and that. That man, he's a very gifted man. He's very gifted. So he might be. But because a man has spiritual gift, does not guarantee that he's a spiritual man. Spirituality in character and soul is additional to gift and it's necessary if the spiritual gift is going to be used for the advantage of others. Now what about this beautiful expression in verse 9? Before we come to the, the Paul's grave concern. Verse 9, God is faithful. He said, you have been failing even though God has furnished you with everything. God is faithful by whom ye were called into the fellowship, unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that's a beautiful expression. Could I ask two questions on that verse? Yes, Brother George. Um, You mentioned earlier, and I do agree 100% with you, that the assembly is not a microcosm or a miniature of the body. This fellowship, what is it? Right. Some say it's uh, universal, expressed in the local church, and some teach that it is local. And the second question would be this, why does he introduce this thought at the commencement of the epistle, the fellowship, it's a lovely expression that you said, mm-hmm. description, the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It'll kind of cover both those, both those questions. 
I personally, I personally do not think that this expression in verse 9 is talking about assembly fellowship. I think that what we're, when you let me put in the word partnership, just to say, God has called us into the partnership of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll be His partners forever. So that it's an eternal fellowship. I'll soon be going out of assembly fellowship, you know. Mm. Either when I die or when the Lord comes, I leave assembly fellowship. I hope the Lord will preserve myself and all of us here until either of those events. But all of us, sooner or later, one way or the other, will be going out of assembly fellowship. Thank God we'll never go out of this fellowship. Mm-hmm. We'll still be partners of Christ. And all the glory that will be His then. So if we'll be sharers of his glory, we should be willing to share reproach and suffering and testimony for him. And it's interesting. Our brother's asking, why did this come in so soon? When you get to the end of the Corinthian correspondence, in 2 Corinthians 13, what's the expression there? Mm -hmm. Fellowship of his Spirit. Communion of the Holy Ghost. Fellowship with the Son. Fellowship with the Spirit. Those are the bonds of fellowship. The Son and the Holy Spirit. When you get to the middle of each epistle, you get that great fellowship at 1 Corinthians 10, the blood of Christ. That's the basis of fellowship. When you get to the middle of 2 Corinthians, he says, what fellowship of light and darkness? So at either end, we have the blessedness of fellowship with the Son, with the Spirit. Just in the middle of the first letter, we have the basis of fellowship. In the middle of the second letter, we have the boundary of fellowship. He says, be not unequally yoked. Hmm. He says, your fellowship with divine persons forbids your association with things that are inconsistent. Brothers, uh, Before you had commenced on this verse, I had thought of asking the question concerning the fellowship. Is it the fellowship in the church which is his body or a church of God a fellowship? Now, on my own thoughts was that if we're brought into that by God, it's not really an assembly fellowship. It is really, this, in, in the, the greater sense, all of those that have been brought by the Spirit of God as regenerated members into the church which is his body. When it is reception to a church of God, the human element comes in. The overseers, perhaps, along with the assembly, receive. And, of course, they too have to put away sorrowful by times. Very good. Now, very good. Now, that will bring us to his appeal. We're coming now from Brother verse David, number 10 down to verse number 17. Brother David, can I just uh, say something? Brother Ken, yes, um, David, I think this is one of the most extended designations of the Lord Jesus anywhere in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I think it's pointed to the greatness of the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think it's setting us up as well for the horror then of division that yes. we get in the subsequent verses. <laughs> I think also fellowship, whilst gloriously positive, has significant negative aspects as well, mm-hmm. ruling out the false fellowships of the idol temples later on in the epistle. Very good. So this privileged fellowship, assembly fellowship, and this larger idea, privileged fellowship is also prohibitive. My association in the one prohibits the other. Now, that will bring us this up. Our brother used the word horror. In fact, I had that in my own mind. The harmony that the apostle desired, he said, I appeal by the name, this glorious name, He said, I appeal, beseech you, brethren, speak the same thing. No divisions. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same... The harmony he desires. 
And then the horror he expresses. He says, was, was Christ divided? He shrinks in horror when he hears about these different statements that they're making. I have Paul. I have Apollos. And then there's the history that he remembers. He says, when I remember the history, he says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize any in my own name. He said, it maybe wasn't intentional, but he said, I'm glad for you could have construed it as if I was trying to create a little party to advance my own cause. But first of all, this harmony, beautiful expression, a very vital thing in assembly life. Speak the same thing, no divisions. Help us on these words, brother. Would this have a connection with the problem of tongues and confusion later on? Is there a link there? Could, could indeed, Brother John. I, I had personally thought in verse 10, our brother's referring to this, that you all speak the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now that's a reference to verse number 12. Because mm-hmm. they were all saying different things. Mm-hmm. One says, I'm a Paul. Another says, I'm a Paul. Another says, he says, don't be using. He says, you don't need those different titles and those different attachments. He says, speak the one thing and let his name, Mm. his name be on the lips of every person. Mm. Brother David, there's no suggestion, is there, that there's any fault on the part of these men, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas? No, I think that's very important to mention. It's not the lead, in this case, just at this point at least, there may be hints later on that there were leaders of a a different approach. But at this time, it's not that Peter tried, not that Cephas tried to create a party. And it's not that Paul tried, or Apollos tried. There's no blame with the leaders. It's the attitude and the adulation which the Christians are giving these men. And we still need to watch that, you know, dear brother. We always need to watch that men are not put on a pedestal. Well, there's a gospel preacher... You know, I hear people, and they get all taken up with a gospel preacher. And they're getting his signature, and they're getting his email, and they're getting his mobile number, and there's a whole plaster. None of this stuff. Remember, the message is always bigger than the man. And once we get the man bigger than the message, and it's all a personality cult, and sort of hero worship, and a celebrity thing, that was the world of Corinth. Get a kick round the big man, the man, and gather round certain men and pit them against each other. And let's have a bit of competition. It's good to have a show and chart them up. Who was the best? It's maybe not just so. It's maybe not so alien from us after all. Still a fair wee bit of it. And it's not the men. It's the position and the treatment that these believers were giving to them. We need to be careful about that, brother Michael. Could you just compare the disunity here with the problem in Philippi? the disunity that was there and the, the approach that Paul takes to the cure in both places. Mm. You see, I think, I, think, I think the disunity here was more to do with personality. I don't think in Philippi where there was that problem with the two sisters and that brings me into a bigger thing. I think in Philippi it was more to do with the principle of how the gospel should be spread and so on. Whereas here... The problem was personalities being promoted, not so much a personal difficulty between two people. Others, um, the wisdom of Paul and how he deals with it, he could have said, was Cephas ever at Corinth? What did Cephas ever accomplish at Corinth? But he starts with himself. 
was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And you notice, uh, over the past ages, when God was pleased to use men in an outstanding way, many of them left their name attached to the work that God had accomplished. You can see the wisdom of Paul in how he handles it. That's it. That's it. So that he, he didn't only just a wee sad brother. Well, see, our brother Ferguson is pointing out that Paul not only handled this situation by bringing up principles that would meet the immediate need, but he handled it in a way and gave the Corinthians principles that could be applied to any situation. Judge it in light of the cross. Baptism. When you're baptizing, you're not introducing other names. May God help us to watch anything, anything amongst us, dear believers, that in any way eclipses the superlative glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. I would just say that when he deals with the problem of Philippi, he goes to Christ. When he deals with the problems in Corinth, he goes to Christ. When he goes to Philippi, you remember, he goes to the humility of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, the mind of Christ. But in Corinth, he goes to the glory of Christ. The greatness of Christ will be the solution. And Christ is far ahead of all of these men. And to lose sight of the lordship of Christ, we've lost it. That's it. Now, it's a, just I wanted before, we'll have to leave this section fairly soon. We've given it a general coverage. I want to think about this. Ex- Sorry, brother. Go ahead there. Just, just a couple of things, David. Paul says that he, bese- he was beseeching them. We cannot order or scold Christians into unity. He beseeches them. That's a softness. And he does it by the cross, by the sufferings of Christ. But with the knowledge that the Corinthians had, it seems as if they didn't recognize the seriousness of this division. For they, they didn't write about this. He had heard about this. It wasn't in the letter that they had sent to him. Very good. I appreciate that. And just what our brother said, you notice, I beseech you, brethren, before these Bible readings finish, he'll beseech them as a father. But brethren, then the next verse, verse number 11, it has been declared unto me, my brethren. You know, there's no letter of Paul's where he addresses the Christians as brethren more frequently per square inch than First Corinthians. <laughs> sure, they're bad, badly behaved. Give them a good bit of rough. No, he does it in an atmosphere of affection and family brotherhood. And we have heard about that. And as our brother has said, he has heard about, has been shown by the house of Chloe, these divisions. They hadn't been reported in their letter. Brother, I was Brother McBride, go ahead. In relation to salvation is in the name. Baptism is unto the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Gathering is unto the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul didn't baptize very many, if any. And the others really would have needed to have built a baptistry if they wanted to have disciples that followed them. <laughs> I see, very good. But it's an interesting little thing. The Apostle Paul looks back now, he says, he says, I tell you, I am thankful. I am thankful. He says that I didn't, he says, I can see the way that could have gone. You know, there are certain things in life when you look back. You maybe didn't think much of them at the time. But when you look back, you're just thankful that the Lord's overruling, preserving hand was seen. Because of how some of those things could have been misconstrued. 
He says, you men can... And we have to be careful. Sometimes you have to do things, keeping in mind not only what people do, but what they might do. Be careful. But Paul says, I know what you boys are... You're all great people for putting up a hero. And he says, I wanted to be careful that there was nothing in my conduct that contributed to your division-making predisposition. We all, maybe this word, I want to get this word before we, have to, before we leave the section. Perfectly joined together. No divisions, that's the negative. Perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Uh, that's an interesting word, isn't it, brethren? Perfectly joined together. Can you give us any help on that? That's the unity that he wants. Right. Sorry, David, oh, I'll go ahead. on something else. Oh, go ahead, sure, go ahead. You'll not get it later, maybe. Well, perfectly joined is a perfect verb. But there are very imperfect conditions here. <laughs> surely. surely but it's the mending of the nets. That's what I want. It's the same word as mending the nets. Matthew 4.21. So obviously, in the fishing, those nets had got torn. You know, just as I'm not making a big thing of it, and we don't want to jump across from passage to passage with verbs and that, I'm just wondering, brethren, maybe is one of the problems that we're not just so good maybe at catching fish. Have some of the nets got torn? There's been a wee bit of a rent in the fabric. You know, there are different divisions. I, I know that there are some assemblies now, just to keep it down to earth. There are some assemblies, not a division like this. Heroes and this one and that one and that. Uh, some have a social division. We click of the, you know, our, our people. Get into a wee club and all just together. And there are Christians in the assembly hardly ever thought about they're not one of the big families. Not one of the in people. We've got to some assemblies get a middle class. You know, we have all nice car. Thank God for a car. Nice home. We sort of want to keep assembly life yeah, upper middle class. It's nice. People from the riffraff have usually too much baggage with them. It's nice to keep her just clean and tidy. We sense of superiority. It could block us catching fish. Need to watch with the net. Perfectly joined together. And the same mind and the same judgment. What about that? You know, it's not easy to get everybody in the assembly the same mind and the same judgment. Thinking about things the same way and making the same decisions. All thinking with a single focus on the Lordship of Christ and making decisions. From that. Sorry, there's a brother there speaking. I'm wondering, is it possible in these verses that he's thinking mainly of those in responsibility? The same as the, the angel of the church, the responsible ones, a, a single person, united, speaking the same thing. The fact he brings in the same mind and the same judgment, would he have a mind possibly? maybe those more responsible, the very fact he's going to raise names of particular type of people. Mm. I, I personally, Brother Bruce, uh, it's interesting to you, I had, he says that ye all speak the same thing and be joined together. And uh, 
I didn't think there's, there's actually it's an interesting thing there's in First Corinthians with all its local and assembly life emphasis there's very little mention of overseers mm-hmm. or those in responsibility I thought it was a common joining together here furthermore First Corinthians 5 might very well indicate that there's either a lack of overseers or they're just not functioning it could be something more like that so now we'll have to nearly push on dear brother we have the concord that he wanted all join. we have the contentions that he heard about we have the candidates that he baptized. He mentions a couple of them here. And uh, verse number 17 will bring us into the next section. We have the commission that he had. He said, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And now we'll come to think about the, the message. The gospel that Paul preached. Brother David, I was thinking in terms of baptism in this section. Yes, Uh, Number one, the dissensions caused by allegiance to men is a contradiction to what we expressed when we were baptized. When we were baptized, we expressed allegiance only to Christ. And then number two, Paul takes for granted that all of the believers in the Corinthian church were baptized. I was glad you mentioned that, yes. And then number three, he makes it clear from his uh, comments that baptism is not necessary for salvation. Mm-hmm. For if it had been, the Lord would have commissioned him to baptize. But he said, he sent me to preach the gospel. Exactly. So that, that's what changes men's lives. It's not baptizing them. It's preaching the gospel that changes men's lives. So that's why they have... That, just an interesting side matter that our brother mentioned... And our brethren, I've heard them mention it over the years, but good reiterated. In all of the teaching of the New Testament letters, not once is there ever an exhortation to get baptized. Nobody is ever told in any New Testament epistle to be baptized. Now they are told in the Acts. And the reason is very simple, what our brother Al says. It's assumed that everybody in a New Testament assembly was already baptized. Mm -hmm. It's just an assumed thing. And I believe we should keep that in mind. Corinthians hearing, believe, baptized, and then the planting of the assembly. So that those things are, these are the initial things that the Apostle starts with. Now this section that... Brother Wesley, David, sorry, again I missed you there. Just a very, a very simple thing. <clears throat> How do we reconcile verse 17? Uh, Christ sent me not to baptize with Matthew 28, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's, it's, just, a, it's you know, just a simple thing in my mind, but maybe you can help us on it. Sure. While you're dealing with that, brother, could we say, keep the context of any passage. I, I won't answer your question, but I know of a particular group that will use verse 17 not to baptize. What are you here? Wait, 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 wait. Keep the context. What are we talking about? We're talking about baptizing in his own name. Christ never sent him to baptize in his own name. Mm-hmm. He said, I wasn't sent to baptize in my own name. It's not that he wasn't sent to baptize. We're not talking about baptism and preaching of the gospel here. We're talking about baptism in the preacher's own name. Maybe just 
You know, there's another wee thing there. I wish I'd get into some trouble after this. I hardly live. Uh, the only verse that will be any comfort to me after the day was after this Job lived. <laughs> Listen, there's a wee thing that I have a wee tiny bit of concern and just forgive me for it if I get about it. Candidate to be baptized, one of the questions they ask, who would you like to do it? Hmm. Who would you like to do it? And I'll get my favourite preacher. Hmm. I'll get my Uncle Johnny. I'll get Aunt Winnie's man. That should never come into it. Rather dispense with that business. Who would you like to do it? Making the assembly just a matter of friends and clubs and relations and favourites. I don't think, there you go, I don't think that should ever, if the preacher, if the, the evangelist is there, that's fine. But all this thing of postponing baptism until you can get just the person of the candidate's choice. I think, don't want to be too hard and just cut that in half and reduce it. But just remember about all those things that we don't get carried away too far and get into all sorts of hoops and hangings over things like that. Now, the preaching of the cross. Praise God for this. But we have been mentioning that there's no elders or bishops, but in the last chapter of the epistle, the apostle mentions a number of names and they have refreshed me and refresh you and he says acknowledge them and he says obey them and there was a number at Corinth that could have helped them but they didn't seem to recognize them that's it that's it it shows you now just our brother's not wanting to go into but it shows you that in all the divisions and disorder in Corinth there were certain brethren and they were displaying maturity they were in bad poor condition but they were being approved and the apostles could commend them when you get, you know dear brother, no matter how difficult the assembly is, if you keep in touch with God, you could still thrive in your own soul in very, very carnal and difficult circumstances. Brother, in the early days, in the Acts, there were no denominations. So that there was no place else to go. If they were born again, it was only into a church of God. We're living now in a day when there's a multitude of denominations. And I think one of the sad things is that there's some brought into the assembly, very, very likely, without little question, with very little question as to how they were born again. And when they're in a little while, are we off to the denomination? One other thing I have not felt free to do, where there is an assembly to baptize one, contrary to the fellowship of the assembly with me. Hmm. I think that is a principle that should be adhered to. Well, well those, our brother has raised a, a subject here, very, um, Jerry, just hold a second, we second. Our brother has raised a subject very important about how do you build up an assembly? How do you get new recruits? It's the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the cross. Now that's, that's we need to be careful, dear brother, much of our weakness is because, and I certainly can't tell people how to preach or so on, but much of our weakness is because, I'm talking about the United Kingdom generally, there's a great, a great defectiveness in the preaching of the gospel. Now that produces a crop of profession. And that in turn 
has a knock-on effect as far as assembly fellowship is concerned. Though there's talking about people brothers. You see, I'm jumping ahead of myself in the sense, you would say, but why is this passage brought in about the preaching of the cross, not in wisdom of words, and not in all that man was looking? The point is this. The reason the Corinthians were promoting these men was they were getting fascinated with the greatness of men. The Apostle says, listen, he says, the message that I preached to you at the beginning, instead of being a message that magnified men, he says it humbled them, and it brought them down to the cross. It made nothing of man, and it made everything of Christ. And I think we still need to keep that balance, maybe, in our gospel preaching. Uh, we'll come back to that, but our brother Gary's wanting to say a word here. I will. It was just on the context of preaching. In Acts 8, you know those expressions, they preach the word, yeah. they preach Christ, things concerning the kingdom of God. And here, the preaching of the gospel, and the preaching of the cross. Can you just say something on the reason why we have those different expressions? We've already had the different one, the churches of God, the churches of the saints, churches of Galatia, and so on. I, I think Gary, and we can't go into all the details I think a good deal of those preach the Lord Jesus preach Christ it depends a little, uh, on the audience that maybe is being directed now, if they're preaching, to, they're preaching to a Jewish audience preach Christ as the Messiah if it's preaching to a Gentile audience as we're talking, preach the Lord Jesus that Jesus Christ is Lord not Caesar so it depends on the audience and here it's the preaching of the cross. Now when you get to the end of the epistle, for example, the apostle will say, I preach that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and so on. But here he's emphasizing the preaching because the cross gives no glory whatsoever to man. Leaves him, leaves him completely stripped and takes it. That's why he was put to death at the place of a skull. Not much brains in the skull. Not much that caters to man's vaunted sense of pride. He says, you're elevating men. He said, the message that I preached was not a message that catered to that kind of a mindset. Now that's the context, but I would like a little bit more help on gospel preaching and the preaching of the cross. Does the preach, I'll ask a question for the help of our brother. Does the preaching of the cross mean that a, that a brother stands, <clears throat> of course, it's like the expression, the word of the cross. Does it mean that he stands and just gives the account that the Lord Jesus was taken, that he was tried, and they scourged him, and they took him out, and they nailed him, and suffered? Or is the preaching of the cross a far wider thing? Is it just giving a historical account of what happened at Calvary. Brother Gary again. Well just on that again. I was just going to say. Whilst the message is the same. When in the Acts the starting point sometimes is different isn't it. And the emphasis. Mm-hmm. Just for instance when Peter goes to Cornelius. He speaks about. Um, you know God is no respecter of persons. When Stephen begins to preach. It's a God of glory. When you go with Paul preaching. In Acts chapter 17. It's the God of creation. So the starting point is different, but the content of the message and the person is still the same. That's exactly it. And it's great, it's great to be audience sensitive. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a thing that we see in the New Testament. You know, we have a great deal of preaching. Now. This is, we have a great deal of what I call gospel hall preaching. 
And that could, this could be misunderstood. It's gospel preaching, but we use a great un- a deal of language. And again, that could be misunderstood. You know, we, ought to be, we need to be careful in our language in gospel preaching. I heard about a chap recently, and he spent a great deal of his time talking about Manchester United. Trying to, trying to show he's with it like. And get in with his audience. Manchester United has nothing to do with the preaching of the cross. It requires a dignity in our language. At the same time, we should be sensitive to... Sometimes we use a lot of language that can only be understood by people who are accustomed to it. We need to remember that we are preaching at times, uh, not as much as we would like to be, but we are preaching to people that are totally biblically illiterate. And yet we preach the cross. Now, what does the preaching of the cross mean? Brother Brian. David, uh, within the, the verses here, we have a number of words that are used in relation to preaching. The preaching, there's the evangelism, there's the word of the cross, there's a public crying and that kind of thing. That will all bring us to the method that's used. It's not a method of drama and gospel concerts and singing. God has ordained that the message should be preached. And that message it's preached is a message of reproach, which I take it involves the cost of those who will trust the Lord Jesus, that they're made aware. It's not get saved and you'll be singing glory, hallelujah, the way to home to heaven and you'll never have another problem. The preaching of the cross is indicating that there will be a reproach devolving upon those who trust the man who hung on the cross. See, all of those things are... I, I still think that if the cross is preached in the sense that we're talking about this broad sense, that I want more elaboration that in learning salvation the man will also learn separation and he'll know that my sins are taking me down to eternal perdition and if I put my trust in the one who was crucified and rose again I'm finished with a life of sin I'm finished with the word and he learns separation even before He's in the good of salvation. That, now the preaching of the cross, I, I, want just, I want to say this for the times going against us. When I'm preaching the cross, any of us, I mean, you need to tell sinners why they need the cross. It's their guilt. We need to tell sinners what the cross has accomplished. That in his dreadful sufferings, the Lord Jesus satisfied the claims of God. We need to tell sinners how they benefit from what he accomplished. We need to tell them in the preaching of the cross that they don't trust them what the eternal consequences will be. So that the preaching of the cross tells a man the need of it, the reason for it, the consequences of accepting it, the consequences of rejecting it. It's a broad statement, but it's cra- we don't preach a crucified Christ. We preach Christ crucified. That we preach a living Christ. Who want, we don't ask sinners to trust the finished work of Christ. We present Christ and tell sinners to trust the living Christ who did finish the work. That's altogether different. We don't cater to people's felt sense of needs. He says the Jews. The Jews are, well he says they're wonder seeking. The Greeks are wisdom seeking. He said, we didn't cater to their... Oh, you say, but this poor... You have to cater to their felt needs. He's not happy. 
he's not happy and he's a bit depressed and he's out of work. And if Johnny comes, you need to cater to his sense of need. And you can't have your meetings too stiff or too solemn. They need to be more informal. See, this is all the kind of thing that we are getting fed with for preaching. Gospel meeting. The Sunday evening meeting is no good. It's too drab. It needs to be spiced and livened and brightened up a little bit. And we'll attract more people if we cater to their, their sense of felt needs. Listen, listen. We don't cater to Johnny's felt needs because the biggest need that Johnny has, he has never felt it. It's not that he's not happy. Johnny's biggest need is that he's guilty before God. And we are meeting his biggest need. When you say you have to be seeker sensitive and you have to be user friendly, we could learn a lot how to treat people that come to our meetings. We're far too stiff and starchy and self-opinionated maybe. But dear brethren, our purpose in gospel is not to make people feel comfortable and cosy. It's to make them feel most uncomfortable. By the preaching of the message, so that eventually they'll value the person who's presented in the tidings. Brother Brother David, surely all of these things that we apply makes the gospel of no effect. That's what the verse really tells mm-hmm. us. It hinders the work of God. And secondly, could I ask the question... We are looking today that many of the servants of God seem to change the message of the gospel into lectures in the gospel. Uh, and they have an approach whereby they don't even uh, sing, they don't pray, but they bring out this whole idea of lecturing the gospel, more intellectual. Ah, surely. See, that's the very thing. The Apostle Paul saying that he didn't garnish his... It wasn't that he was against a well-presented message. What has been attacked here is not a, not, a, not a message well set out. The Apostle Paul is not against that. Not at all. But it's using rhetoric and commanding oratorical skill in a way that is calculated to make you admire the presenter. He's not against rhetoric. Rhetoric that's calculated to reach the man's conscience. Rhetoric that's calculated to bring the man to a... a an appreciation of Christ. A well presented message. But it's rhetoric that's calculated to put the preacher in a fine light. And show him off as a showcase presenter. The Apostle Paul says that's what you're all worshipping. Giving men with presentation. He says you need to keep the substance of the message. And it's Christ. He said that's the message that makes the partition. Between perishing and salvation. And divides the audience. And we keep all those things in mind. Well, thanks. George John. In verse 18, David, we would almost have expected him to say, but unto us which are saved it is the wisdom of God. (laughs) Could you answer why it is the power of God and also then just because of the time? Is this all a fulfillment of God's purpose? From Isaiah 29, is, is all this taking place as the ultimate end that God had in view that he would destroy man's wisdom and display his own now John's bringing this or brother John's bringing it and I have to summarise because we're just a minute or two here he's, depending in, he's in the next reading anyway on which clock yeah that's a lot of those things will, will come up into the next reading now listen Christ the wisdom of God the power of God verse 18 my brother's first question them that perish foolishness us which are saved the power he doesn't say the wisdom Salvation is not through what a man knows. 
Salvation is through what God does. That's why it's power and not wisdom. So that the cross is a message of partition. Them that perish. Them that are saved. Makes the difference between heaven and hell for eternity. Adds to its solemnity. Then the cross is a message that saves from perdition. Verse 19, God says, quoted from Isaiah 20, He says, I will destroy. I will bring to nothing. There's an awful day of destruction coming. And the cross is the only message can save from that. Well, you say, if you want to be saved, would you not need the wise? Verse 20. He says, when it comes to getting saved, where is the wise? Where is the disputer? Where is the scribe? He says, they can't save you. He says, whether it's the Greek wise man or the Jewish scribe, he says, God has turned all that to foolishness. And if wisdom doesn't save a man, what does save him? Verse 21. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The partition the cross makes, the perdition the cross averts, and the principle which the cross employs, a man gets saved by faith. And the people the cross reaches, verses 23, 22 and 23, he says you've got a divided world with Jews and Greeks, Jews that are seeking signs, Greeks that are seeking speculations. He says, we don't cater to either. But he says, we preach Christ crucified. And we preach that message because it's both the power of God and the foolish power and wisdom of God. Why do you preach Paul? Why do you preach Christ? He says, verse 25. The reason we preach Christ crucified is this. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The second reason we preach is this. The weakness of God is stronger than men. He said a Christ on the cross can accomplish for men something that all the armies of Rome would never accomplish and that all the academies of the Greeks would never give. I hope, dear brethren, that God will help us to keep preaching the message of a rejected but risen Christ and that God will bless it to the salvation of souls and the upbuilding of assembly testimony. Keep at the gospel. Anything our brethren want to say just in conclusion? Just on the partition of the cross, the word is actually they're perishing. They're on the way. It's happening right now. No one is static on the broad way to destruction. They're perishing. And the ones that are saved, they're being saved. And it is a one word that proves the security of our salvation. It's a passive verb another one is saving them. They're not saving themselves. We are being saved by the Lord Jesus. And just as we conclude, I appreciate all that and all the help of our brethren. That's another thing to keep in mind when we are preaching the cross. That we're preaching to people who, as they sit before us without Christ, they're perishing. Mm -hmm. On the brink of eternal ruin. But you say, I like, I like to get a wee bit in that impresses the Christian. You say, I like, I like a wee point or two that Let's the brother know I can do it. That of a grasp of the passage. Well, that's all right, dear brother, but don't forget the people that are perishing. People that are perishing, and we need to reach them. We're not there to entertain Christians, or to even educate sinners, or to entertain sinners. It's not the gospel of humor. It's the gospel of the cross. May the Lord help us to spread it for His glory. Thanks very much for...
ask to pray briefly and give thanks for the food. Our Father, we bow in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. We thank Thee for these precious moments around Thy Holy Word. We remember it is Thy Word. We thank Thee for these solemn principles. We ask that Thou will enable us to even imbibe these matters in our souls and grant that we might, by Thy Spirit, be enabled to incorporate them in assembly testimony. We thank Thee for the message of the cross that reached our own hearts and changed our own lives. We thank Thee for such a Saviour, Thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and we pray that our testimony might contribute to His greater glory. We ask Thee to remember us as the day continues. We look to Thee for the opening of Thine hand in the later Bible reading, the ministry tonight, just now we give thee thanks for refreshment. We ask thy blessing as we do partake and we commit our further spiritual exercises to thee with our thanksgiving in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen. Gather to my name,
ਦਾ ਖੁਲਾ